Hey, it's Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. It's KRCL's show that plugs you into grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, DIY creatives, all sorts of folks. Tonight on the show, community co-host Nick Burns is back with a panel of environmentalists tackling water and land issues as we barrel toward the 2022 general session of the Utah legislature. Opening day is Tuesday, January 18th, folks. Stick around to hear from the Utah Rivers Council and the Great Basin Water Network, both of which are part of a complaint recently filed over Iron County's Pine Valley Water Project, and what the complainants say are violations of Utah's Open and Public Meetings Act. Also on the panel, we'll hear from somebody involved with the Utah 30 by 30 Coalition. They'll gather online tomorrow, yes, COVID affecting their plans, to talk about their work protecting 30% of the country's lands and ocean waters by 2030, and what that means here in the Beehive State. First, an update on at least one service project for Martin Luther King Day being affected by COVID. This weekend, the Benyon Center at the University of Utah had planned a community-wide push, but due to COVID, they are redirecting these efforts to solely virtual and self-directed service events. Visit krcl.org and check out the rallies and resources page for a link. There you'll also find a list of other events on and around Martin Luther King Day, which is observed on Monday. Be sure to double check with the event organizers of each listing to see if or whether or how COVID is affecting their plans, folks. But you can be of service in your community and stay COVID safe. You can gather donations and drop them off at the Road Home or the Utah Food Bank or any one of a number of nonprofits in our community helping to build Dr. King's beloved community. To get started, a conversation about something that caught my eye at the Natural History Museum of Utah. Archaeology on the Colorado Plateau is revealing the impact of climate change on the gendered division of labor we still live with today. That's according to my next guest, Dr. Lisbeth Lauterbeck, curator of archaeology at the Natural History Museum of Utah and assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Utah. Her research was recently published by American Antiquity, and in it, she says women have been responding to climate change before their male counterparts for thousands of years. I spoke with her to find out more. Welcome to Radioactive, Dr. Lauterbeck. Thanks for your time. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. So what prompted this avenue of investigation for you? Well, I'm, uh, I'm an archaeobotanist, and I am, that means I look at plant remains from archaeological sites, and I'm interested in past human diets and how and why they changed over time. But, you know, we all know that humans are not um, just herbivores, so you have to look at the animal remains as well. Um, and so that's what I did for my um, dissertation work, is I looked at the um, plant and animals from a site called North Creek Shelter. This is in Escalante, southern Utah. And, um, and I was looking at how the abundances of those remains changed through time and what that meant for human diets. So paint us a picture in the Wayback Machine. How many years are we going back? And what would the, uh, the landscape, the climate be like? So the earliest deposits date to around 11,000 years ago. And at this time, um, what's now covered with pinyon juniper woodlands would have been um, much more higher elevation conifers that we see, you know, at the tops of mountains across Utah. So things like um, fir, Douglas fir, spruce, um, even ponderosa pine. So these trees, um, which I refer to as more cool, cool adapted conifer species, would have been growing at lower elevations 11,000 years ago. All right. So we got the time and the place in our mind. What was changing climate-wise then? And uh, talk about the evidence that you're looking at to support what you have decided was going on. Right. So, you know, after about 10,000 years ago, conditions got increasingly warm and dry. Um, those cool adapted conifers were shifting up in elevation as much as 900 meters. Um, and we're being replaced with more kind of desert scrub mosaic um, kind of vegetation. Um, so that shift in climate and vegetation um, kind of prompted a shift in foraging strategies by hunter-gatherers, you know, 10,000 years ago. And what I was seeing in the archaeological record is 
with um, animal remains, and mainly um, I'm talking large mammals, so this would have been deer, bighorn sheep, elk. The abundances of those remains never really changed significantly throughout the Holocene. In the Holocene, I'm talking about 11,000 years ago to about 7,000 years ago. Um, and that kind of, you know, was surprising because there is a theory that we use in anthropology. It's actually first developed from the biological scientists called the foraging theory that predicts um, that organisms, whether you're a human or an insect, um, are going to go after, you know, what we call high return resources. So things like large mammals would be more high return, meaning you get more calories per effort in capturing the, those resources than like small seeds from plants, right? Small seeds are not going to give you as many calories per effort. So the, the theory, the predictions from the theory basically state that organisms should always take those, those larger mammals, the higher return resources. And if those happen to decline in abundance, then you would go after the lower return resources like small seeds from plants. But I was seeing a different pattern that didn't match that prediction. So I was seeing that those large mammals were always taken throughout time. Yet at about 10,000 years ago, we start seeing a lot of small seeds being processed and consumed. And the technology that would be associated with the small seeds, which would be the grinding stones. Before 10,000 years ago, we don't really see evidence of that at all. So I interpreted it as not necessarily, it is a dietary shift, but the reason why it doesn't necessarily match the predictions is because what well, I think it's reflecting different tasks, foraging tasks by men and women. And the priorities um, for or responsibilities for feeding the tribe, the family, the unit falling differently on men and women. Absolutely. So women, you know, they're pro there's probably not as much um, moving around. So they are kind of staying in one place, which means, you know, they are going to be tending to their children and the elderly and really foraging for more local resources. And at around 10,000 to 7,000 years ago, that was more, you know, plants that produce small seeds. Um, and, you know, perhaps before then women were, you know, helping men hunt or whatnot. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and we see that, that happening, you know, in modern hunter-gatherer societies as well. That, that's that same kind of model where men are going off long distances, finding big chunks of meat, <laughs> bringing it back while women are staying close to their camps and tending to their children and getting more reliable resources um, that are low risk. So history repeating itself. And that's what I kind of wanted to come to was that um, the reasons for the shift are the same today as, as in the past. Women tend to be more responsible for the daily task of gathering reliable foods to feed their young and therefore more likely to feel the effects of climate change than men, you say. Still today. Yeah, especially in rural areas and in developing nations. That sexual gender division of labor is very present um, now in North America. In, in some areas, you know, that division of labor is not as apparent. Um, women are working um, just as much as men are and traveling. And um, so that, that, you know, that gender division of labor is, is not present everywhere today like it was in the past. But it's really important to know, you know, our deep evolutionary history with division of labor. I mean, it's, it's been happening more than 100,000 years ago, starting with the Neanderthals. <laughs> and, and it's a really successful strategy. Um, and it allowed men and women to compensate in different ways in order to maximize their reproductive fitness. I mean, a lot of anthropologists believe that it was sexual division of labor, which you don't see in other organisms necessarily. 
um, that that really led to how our society is formed today. So that history is important to understand when we talk about the division of labor. I'm not sure what it says about um, the gender pay gap, but that's a conversation for another day, Dr. Louderback. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. You could go down a lot of rabbit holes with this. <laughs> Where are you going to go next with this, or are you off on another subject now? No, I'm going to continue this research. Um, this uh, finding, you know, there's not a lot of archaeological records where you can get that type of time depth and that amount of um, archaeological material, especially plant and animal remains together. And I even coupled that with environmental data from the site, too. So I had this really nice package of data with multiple lines of evidence from one site, and I was able to put together a story um, using all those lines of evidence. There's a few other sites on the Colorado Plateau, as well as in the Great Basin. And so my next um, uh, project would be to kind of use the same approach at multiple sites across the arid west to see if these patterns emerge at other sites. I already know that in other areas, the, the animal remains do change through time. So something else is going on. Um, and I have some suspicions as to why that is. Um, but yeah, maybe in a few years, I'll, I'll have a, a broader study to talk about. And that's Dr. Lisbeth Lauterbach of the Natural History Museum of Utah. She began her investigation by examining how and why human diets changed over the past 11,000 years at North Creek Shelter, the oldest archaeological site in southern Utah. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the data she mentioned. If you'd like to check it out for yourself, it'll be in the show notes tonight. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive. And when we come back, community co-host Nick Burns in a panel discussion about land and water issues in Utah. To get us from here to there, how about this one from his golden messenger off the Quietly Blowing It album, Hardly Town, on KRCL 90.9, worldwide at krcl.org. It's cradle to the grave, so be good to each other. I try to be brave on. Utah has more than 10,000 nonprofits, like Women of the World, which needs practical English volunteers and mentors. You can help forcibly displaced women make Salt Lake City their home and build community through self-reliance and trust. Details at womenofworld.org. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Utah Black Chamber is kicking off Black History Month with the annual Evening in Harlem Gala on February 4th. This evening of art, music, and Harlem Renaissance-style entertainment benefits the Black Success Center. More information and registration at eveninginharlem.com. Hi, this is Kenna Patino from Heal Utah with a few simple actions you can take on the bad air days we get during the winter inversion season. Today's winter inversion is a perfect in-your-face reminder to take action. There are many ways you can get involved locally to improve our air, from following our Clean Air acronym to getting involved at the state and city level to push strategies to improve Utah's air quality. The legislative session is a week away, making now the time to reach out to your lawmakers and encourage their support for expanding transit, investing in electric vehicles, and improving building codes. Find out who represents you and tell them why focusing on clean air strategies matters to you and your community. To find out more information, check us out at HealUtah.org. Thanks, Radioactive. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL, your community connection. I'm Nick Burns, community co-host, co-host rather, here on Wednesdays. And you know, we are just under a week away from the 2022 general session of the Utah legislature. It's a 45-day period when your elected officials, uh, the representatives and senators, they're either going to make or maybe they're going to unmake some laws that affect all of us across all of Zion. So sure to be on the agenda, just like every year, water, land, drilling, not drilling, who's greedy, who's not greedy, and who's going to get served. So tonight, and I mean that in a positive way and a negative way both. So tonight on the show, we've got a panel uh, to discuss with you, you know, various issues, specifically water. Uh, so D to Seed, thank you. Welcome back to Radioactive. 
Thanks for having me. You're with the Center for Biological Diversity. And I want to talk uh, when we get into it about your work with Utah 30 by 30, which is fairly amazing and somewhat unique across the country. So pretty happy about that. Yeah. Zach Frankel, Utah Rivers Council, always a pleasure to have you join us. Nick, it's wonderful to see you again on Carousel. So happy to be here for oh. just a few minutes, as always, to talk with you. And again, it's always, I have to say, Zach, it's always a bummer because we're always talking about ways that people are trying to screw over Utah when it comes to water. And it's usually our own Utahns who are doing it. But we appreciate you keeping the awareness alive. And someday we're all going to win. Um, <laughs> And Kyle Rorink, thank you. You're with the Great Basin Water Network. Yes, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And thank you for joining us. Again, we want to talk about the Pine Valley Water Project. Uh, and I know there's a lot to talk about there. Um, and I, and I, but I think I want to start, Dita, with you. This notion 30 by 30, uh, what you are involved in, we are one of only, what, six states? actively engaged uh, in a civic way, I want to say, with what uh, now President Biden promised back during his run, and that is protecting 30% of the land by 2030. That's right. Um, so Utah has a, a great group of um, activists and uh, environmental and conservation organizations and businesses and faith community folks who are coming together to create um, what's called the Utah 30 by 30 coalition. And what it's all about is working to protect 30% of Utah's lands and water um, by 2030. Um, and right now we've, we've done a little analysis and um, based on that, um, about 13% of Utah's land and water has protection. And by protection, we mean um, protected for climate resilience and for biodiversity. And so, you know, the best example of protection would be a wilderness area. Um, and then, you know, lands that aren't protected at all, obviously, like private owned, privately owned lands that um, are subject to lots of development or extractive industry stuff. Um, and anyway, um, so we've got this fantastic group and tomorrow we're an officially announcing our coalition. And if people want to watch uh, the press conference where we um, announce our, our group and our plans, um, it's gonna be live streamed off of Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment's uh, Facebook page. But let me just tell you uh, the, the names of the groups that, that are a oh, part of huge. Coalition. So we've got the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, the Sierra Club, Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment, Conserve Southwest Utah, um, Mormon Environmental Stewardship Alliance, the Utah Rivers Council, um, Great Salt Lake Audubon, Save Our Foothills, Save Our Canyons, Friends of Great Salt Lake, Great Old Broads for Wilderness, Patagonia, uh, Utah Dene Bikea, Save Our Great Salt Lake, um, and I actually might be missing a couple, um, but that's, that's, that's the start. Uh, so we're really excited. And um, we're also going to be releasing the results of a survey that we conducted of Utahns. We had um, 11,000, no, excuse me, that, I'm overstating it, 1,100 <laughs> people respond. And we asked questions about what would you like to see protected? What kind of protection should places get? And so we'll be talking about that tomorrow as well. Good. So I have to I have to point out as we roll into the legislative session, you mentioned 13% of Utah effectively protected. And of course, for many people, that's 13% too much. But um, I wanna get into water though, because when we think of protecting land, we think of a wilderness area and there's babbling brooks and forests and high mountain peaks that are snow covered and we can all go backpacking and hanging out. But what we're talking about with this Pine Valley water grab is really underground water. So I think to jump into that, um, Kyle Rorink, let's bring you in here from the Great Basin Water Network. 
Tell us a little bit about this water grab. It's a huge underground area that uh, people want to just suck dry near as I can tell. Well, thank you so much, Nick. And yeah, let's, um, this is ultimately a three phase project. The uh, environmental review required under federal law is being conducted right now by the Bureau of Land Management. But I'll start by giving your listeners some uh, geographic perspective. Uh, this project will take place just south of Great Basin National Park in Pine Valley. Um, and the goal for phase one and phase two is to export 9 billion gallons of water annually from hydrographic basins in Pine Valley and Wawa Valley to Cedar City. And Cedar City right now, fast, fast growing community in, in central Utah, and they have been mismanaging their water for years and, and their groundwater supply there is, uh, is quickly dwindling. So instead of doing the hard work of ripping out turf and other uh, implementing other conservation investments, they want to pump and pipe 9 billion gallons of water annually from these desert basins just south of Great Basin National Park. And, and when we talk about groundwater, uh, you know, it, it, is, it can be a bit of a mystery uh, to folks who don't live and breathe this stuff. And but some of this water is 20,000 years old. It's from the last ice age. And once it's gone, it doesn't come back. And um, these systems are, are aquifers in, in the West Desert and in Eastern Nevada. They're all connected and they're all relics of the ancient uh, Lake Bonneville. And so this water ultimately flows toward and into the Great Salt Lake. And so when we talk about Pine Valley, we're not just talking about, you know, two remote basins uh, in the West Desert. We're talking about a larger system of, of groundwater that, uh, that is in jeopardy right now because uh, local water officials in Cedar City are uh, too lazy or cavalier to want to do the hard work necessary uh, to continue providing uh, present day customers and future customers with a reliable resource. Didn't we, and by we I mean Utah, didn't we go through this not all that long ago with the state of Nevada wanting to suck dry an underground aquifer um, and everybody else sort of be damned? <laughs> Well, Nick, you, you asked the question that I, I wanted you to ask. Uh, I think uh, Utah is suffering from a pretty foul case of amnesia right yeah. now. Because, yes, for, uh, for years it was Utah uh, that was fighting back against Nevada and Las Vegas when, when Las Vegas wanted to pump and pipe 58 billion gallons of water from the West Desert and from Eastern Nevada every year to feed sprawl growth and development uh, in Vegas. And Utah stood firm. It was Governor Herbert who went to a small community in Eskdale and said, I will not sign into any agreement with the SNWA that would encourage the export of our water because it will steal water from Utah. Well, this project, the Pine Valley and Wawa Valley project, well, ultimately it'll steal water from other communities in Utah and it'll steal water from Nevada. And that's why you're seeing our organization, the Great Basin Water Network, we're partnering with uh, Beaver County, Millard County, Jueb County, and White Pine County in Nevada, because fortunately they're not suffering from amnesia. They, uh, you know, they still have the trauma and, and remember about you know, the fight with the SNWA in Las Vegas to stop that water grab. We know how these systems func function and we know what can happen when you start sticking straws in the ground to suck away water that's already accounted for uh, somewhere else. Oh, I'm reminded of the movie, I Drink Your Milkshake, but that's beyond, beyond maybe today. Um, Zach Frankel, Utah Rivers Council, you and I and Radioactive, we often talk about rivers here we're talking about vast amounts of underground water, but I really think there's not much difference here. 
You know, I agree, Nick, you know, and in, in fact, what the Pine Valley project is, uh, Kyle uh, has really articulated well, shares with the conversation we often have on Radioactive is the failure by these Utah water suppliers to provide meaningful leadership. And the Pine Valley project's a good example. You know, we claim to be fiscally conservative here in Utah, but the Iron County Water District gets almost 70% of its revenues from the collection of property taxes. They are collecting property taxes on homes and businesses and even automobiles. And that forms three, almost three of every $4 they collect. Uh, and they only get one in every $4 they collect from selling water. And it's crazy, right? So the repercussions of that failed tax policy is that Iron County has some of the cheapest water in the United States and some of the highest per person use. I mean, I don't know. You know, we talked about this so many times, Nick. I know I'm sorry. I'm repeating no, myself. No, 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 but it's, 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 it's the crazy because I don't know of anywhere else that does this. Yeah. You know, we, we, we tell ourselves as Utahns that we embrace fiscal conservatism and the free market. And then, then the water sector, we build these lavish and unnecessary water projects. As you point out, this one is a groundwater withdrawal and pipeline system, which would be completely unnecessary if Iron County would get serious about instituting meaningful water rates instead of taxes to deliver their water. And so it's really sad that they're proposing to mine this fossilized hmm. water, this really ancient, ancient aquifer, and just, you know, use it, suck it out of the ground and let it disappear. And then, I don't know, 30 or years down the road, they'll be like, gosh, we've run out of water. Maybe we should conserve it. And, well, and or so, they'll go find some other aquifer they want to steal from, right? It's, it's I, I understand the greed of developers. I understand you want it now and you want to build it now and so on and so on. What I don't understand is how they can be incredibly short-sighted because today's greed will mess up tomorrow's greed. Um, and if they were more conservation-oriented and were interested in saving water, there could be more development down the road and you think everybody that's in that line of work would be richer later, but it's all, it's gimme, 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 now, now, now. And we were talking about how the legislative session is right in front of us you know, they tend to kind of just roll over for these water groups, it seems to me. Yeah, you know, I know um, you had um, uh, ProPublica, Mark's uh, Olaid on the um, show uh, uh, the last couple of weeks, and he talked about exactly what you just said. You know, the fact is that the Utah legislative uh, the Utah legislature's hallways are full of water lobbyists with their hands out saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. And they're looking for hundreds of millions of dollars in appropriations to build unnecessary water projects like both the Pine Valley Project, proposed Bear River Development, proposed Lake Powell Pipeline. And unfortunately, those water lobbyists, that special interest is massive in scope. There's literally dozens and dozens of those paid lobbyists that are collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so what's tough about water, I think is people don't realize that it is a special interest, just like any other natural resource issue. And that there are lobbyists that are working to you know, build these destructive projects, these unnecessary projects. And those of us that are on this call in the public interest and obviously other public interest advocates that go to the state house, you know, we got our work cut out for us. It's not uncommon for us to be outnumbered 10 to one or mm. 20 to one by the other side. Oh, so Kyle Rohrink, um, Great Basin Water Network, representing again, you know, borders that aren't just drawn in the sand between states. How do other states around us and in Nevada, I guess, particularly with this particular water issue, how do they handle the notion of paying for water and taxing for water and conserving, or do they? Well, I think um, it, it's best uh, to focus on what is happening in Vegas right now as it relates yeah. to water conservation. And for years, as uh, folks in, in Utah and Nevada who make up the Great Basin Water Network, as when we fought Las Vegas, we always said there are cheaper options to get you 
the water that you need, which uh, just so happens to already exist in the community uh, in which you reside. And so, you know, despite the fact that we had seven major legal victories against the SNWA in a, in a variety of, of arenas, which uh, Dita's group helped us on uh, as well, but you know, we said focus on conservation, and the SNWA did. They they began massive turf removal uh, buyback programs where they essentially pay you to get rid of your green lawn that's growing in the desert, and they help you do some xeriscaping. So that's that's one way. It's been wildly okay. successful. They've they've removed enough blades of grass down in Vegas to go around the whole world. Um, and so I think what we're dealing with here in Southern Utah, and I mean, Zach's been dealing with it on the Lake Powell pipeline forever, and we're dealing with a mythology. We're dealing with a mythology about what we as uh, residents and society should look like from, a, from an aesthetic perspective. And uh, aesthetics are, are a hard thing to uh, you know, relinquish. And a, a few weeks ago, there was a meeting in Cedar City. It was a dog and pony show propaganda event where the, the pipeline proponent, the Iron County Water District, said, basically, you know, them and some of their friends got on stage and said, we don't want to change our lifestyle here. We don't want to get rid of our green lawns. We don't want to come to grips with the fact that we live in a desert. We don't want to come to grips with the fact that we're going to have less and less water in our own community. They basically just said, we're going to import water in perpetuity. And, and, and by the way, we can't stop the type of growth that we want. So we have a right to, to import because growth isn't going to stop. And we're entitled, to, we're entitled to water, we're entitled to growth, and we're not entitled to changing our behavior. And so we have to figure out how to eradicate that. And I think, as Zach has uh, expertly touched on, is that the way to do that in, in the Utah is to shine light on the fact that none of these projects uh, fit the ideal that most Utahns, you know, carry the the belief of limited government, the the belief of you know limited taxation and limited spending. You know, these are these are government boondoggles on the highest order. And, um, and I think that's what makes our coalition special because we are working with uh, certain agricultural interests, rural county commissions, mm -hmm. tribes, environmentalists. It's like when you have that type of coalition coming together, like to me, that, that says something. That, that doesn't just happen because, uh, because we willed it to happen. It happens because it makes sense uh, in, in some regards, but again, uh, willful ignorance down in, in Cedar oh. City and, and other areas in Southern Utah. Well, willful, igno willful ignorance, blinders. And, you know, I have to say, Phoenix figured this out. Arizona figured this out 50, 60, 70 years ago, that not everybody can have a green lawn. Um, and there were growing pains and things have changed. This is Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. We are on your community connection, KRCL 90.9. We're talking about water tonight, talking specifically about the Pine Valley Water Supply Project, which is another one of uh, the kinds of projects Utah is famous for, kind of sucking up water and spreading it around where we don't need to, but man, there's a lot of money to be made. So Dita Seed, I want to bring you back in here. You, we were talking about coalitions and you've got this amazing coalition working on 30 by 30. And I wonder, because the legislative session is coming up so quickly, what do you anticipate your work will be up on the Hill starting next week? Well, we are anticipating uh, because they've already filed it an anti 30 by 30 resolution. Okay. Um, so we'll be, We'll be watching for that. Um, and then, you know, I think um, we're all going to be watching closely to see what happens with federal infrastructure money, um, mm. specifically with regard to water uh, development, potentially. Um, you know, there's the, the scary thing is that the legislature um, is going to be sitting on a whole pile of money, like billions and billions of dollars. And um, the 
this money could easily be used for really harmful projects. So not only things like uh, Bear River diversion, but um, also they're looking to fund something called the Bookcliffs Highway, um, mm -hmm. which is a completely unnecessary damaging potential paved road through the book cliffs um, to be funded with, they were originally looking for federal money. Now they're thinking that they'll take the federal money and use it to pay for state things and, and then take the offset and use state money for the book cliffs highway. It's like a $400 uh, million dollar expenditure potentially. So there are lots of bad infrastructure projects that could be coming at us that we'll be looking for. And and then I'm sure Zach has a long list of water related legislation oh. that could be terrible. Oh, the Utah Lake Island proposal, that's still out there. Um, that's insane. It is insane. Um, and, and right now, you know, it's, it's turning into a classic boondoggle because um, they're launching an environmental, a national environmental policy act process um, you know, and, and that's a huge, lengthy, expensive process. Anyway, there's, there's going to be, people need to stay alert. There's going to be a lot of bad things happening. Um, oh. But, you know, the good news, I just want to say this, and our 30 by 30, our survey of people asking what they would like to see protected and what's a priority for them. Um, the number one thing that people talked about was protecting uh, river corridors and watersheds. And oh, I, awesome. yeah, and I think that comes from the fact that everyone knows that we're in a mega drought. And the first thing that you do when you're in this horrible situation is pr to protect the water resource, right? So that's, that's good news. And, yeah. you know, people power sometimes can carry the day. And so that's why we do the organizing work. Thank you, Zach, Frank, I'll bring you back in here. Water on the surface, Great Salt Lake. Our our governor, who tends to roll over for the legislature, I'll go out on a limb here and say that, um, he actually had one of his little dog and pony shows himself out at the lake and talked about saving it. I wonder, do you see any active movement in the legislative session ahead to get more water into the lake? You know, uh, really great question, Nick. You know, there's been a lot of dog and pony shows. Um, we almost <laughs> need, you know, like our own league in Utah for dog and pony shows around water because there seem to be so many. But absolutely, you know, the governor went out to the Great Salt Lake and he said, the Great Salt Lake is so important. We need to save it and we need water for the Great Salt Lake and we need more dams. We need dams, dams, dams. It's a fatal mistake that we don't have more dams and diversions. Um, and so, you know, it's like saying, hey, we really need handgun safety and I'm going to prove it by shooting myself in the foot. Um, and so, oh. you know, it's just crazy that the governor and other leaders in Utah do not understand the opportunities available to us. The Great Salt Lake needs two million acre feet of dedicated protected water supply, at least. It's uh, at a new historic low this fall. It reached of 4191 and set the new historic low. The health for the Great Salt Lake is in the range of um, about 4202 to 4198. So we're uh, four or five feet uh, below the healthy range of the Great Salt Lake. It needs to come back up. And, and we don't have any substantive proposals right now in legislation at the Utah legislature to do anything meaningful to protect the Great Salt Lake. The, the closest best, best bill we've got that's been publicly available right now is HB 33, which is Representative's Ferry Bill, which will allow the landowner that owns the land of the lake bed which of course is owned by the state of Utah. That's the Utah Division of Forestry, Fire and Sovereign Lands. Okay. That's the, the state body that owns the lake bed. His bill, if passed, would allow them to have a water right. But we have no bills presented to say, this is how we're gonna guarantee 2 million acre feet of water. We don't even have any bills guaranteeing any water flows at all the Great Salt Lake. And what I think people need to understand about water and rivers and lakes in Utah is that they have no legal right to exist. It's not even legal for a, for a water rights holder to take their water rights, to take their private property and put it in a river 
and not lose that water right. Under Utah's water laws, they will lose that water. And that doesn't make any sense. If I'm a farmer and I've had a creek that's flowed next to or across my, my farm or ranch forever and ever, and I want to take a portion of my water and put it in that creek to keep the fish and wildlife sustained, that should be a legal use of my private property, my water no, rights. You can't do that. Nope. You can't do that. And <laughs> unfortunately, Representative Ferry's bill does not change that. And, and that's what we really need is a meaningful in-stream flow bill. If we had an in-stream flow law, that would allow Utah's rivers, lakes, and streams to be protected by acquiring water rights, we would be following the lead of other states in the American West that do have good in-stream flow laws and effectively mm -hmm. allow the market to protect water. I mean, that's what large land trusts like Utopian Lands and the Nature Conservancy and other states are doing you know, in other communities that have land trusts and um, the nature conservancy, they buy water and they put it in the stream. Trout Unlimited does that too. But we can't do that here in Utah because our legislators will not get out of the way because the water lobbyists are the ones controlling the puppet show. Uh, Kyle Rorink, circle back around to where we started. This Pine Valley boondoggle actually, you know, will take even more water away from the lake right? Because it's sucking it out from under the ground. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, there is an interconnected uh, system yeah. of, uh, of aquifers uh, in eastern Nevada and in the West Desert that ultimately uh, flow to the Great Salt Lake. And yes, it's not like it's, it's flowing hundreds of thousands of acre feet a day into the Great Salt Lake. It does move slowly. But the thing to consider here is that once you start pumping in that system and extracting more water out of that system, the effects of that pumping can be seen and felt uh, pretty quickly. And also, I think the, it's, it's unpredictable about how long it could take for those effects to ultimately stop and, and find an equilibrium. Um, so, you know, those are, those are just some of the things that we've really wanted to convey to people in, in Salt Lake, especially, you know, everybody was, was on board about fighting the SNWA, uh, in Nevada, but now that it's happening in state, you know, some of the entities that we relied upon years ago are a little bit more sheepish now. And I think it goes back to what Zach was saying about the grip of the uh, of the Utah water cartel and lobby. Um, and so, again, I think it's going to be important for people to speak up and, and show up um, because we have, you know, what are the resources that are on the line here? I think uh, a lot of people in Salt Lake City who, who have been to Great Basin National Park wouldn't like to hear that this project is is going to jeopardize the integrity of that ecosystem and landscape you know when, when this project is going to completely decimate the water table in snake valley even though it's taking place in pine valley and in wawa valley and there's a proposal to also pump in hamlin valley as well and so you know what about a place like fish springs national wildlife refuge that's also on the chopping block with uh, with this project, there's uh, endangered species, uh, the the U the Utah prairie dog. There's also uh, potentially threatened species like like the least chub. So you know, there's also communities, agricultural communities, um, and so whether whether they be in Millard County or Juab County or Beaver County. So there's there's a lot on the line here. And again, just because we may be 200 miles south. Uh, of, of Salt Lake City doesn't doesn't mean that that there's a symbiotic and connected relationship. Is, is this water under the Goshute lands also? Um, you know, I, I think under traditional Goshute lands, uh, in, indeed, it, it uh, you know whether it's it's in Ibapah Valley, um, you know that hasn't that's not a part of the discussion. But the Goshutes are are participating in this process. They've been participating in the federal environmental review. As are uh, as is the Indian Peaks Band of the of the Paiute tribes of Utah, and so uh, 
you know, that is an extremely important part uh, about this project, um, where for the Indian Peaks Band, this, this pipeline in, in Pine Valley, phase one, um, goes right through their traditional lands. Um, and so, and, and there are some, some questions as it relates to, to water rights in that regard, too. Um, so, you know, it is, uh, it's very troubling. And I, and I just wanted to make it clear here that where the project proponent and the Bureau of Land Management in the state, they keep on calling it the, the Pine Valley Project publicly and on, on the, the EIS. But we have to be clear is that Wawa Valley is also a part of this, another spectacular uh, you know, Great Basin uh, ecosystem, and um, and also Hamlin Valley is potentially a part of it too. They want to they want to try and break apart and segregate these things, but we have documents from them that show this is a West Desert water importation effort, not just one basin from them. So, I just wanted to be uh, clear oh, about that because I think it's an important perspective. No, thanks. D to C, bring you back in here. We've only got a few minutes left for folks who want to still be involved with your survey 30 by 30, and we'll get the, the link for tomorrow's press conference in the show notes. But, you know, on Radioactive, we always talk about contacting your elected officials, but to get involved beyond the obvious um, and to get involved with the survey, what should people do? So they should go to our coalition website, um, which is utah30by30.org. And the by is a little X. Um, and take the survey. And then you'll you'll end up um, on our mailing list. And then also tomorrow, if people are interested, at 10.30 a.m., they can go to Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment's Facebook page and watch the live feed of our press conference and they also can watch it later at their leisure. Oh, thank you. And Zach, how, how can we turn this around to a, to a more optimistic ending than usually we have to leave it with you where, you know, we are massively wasting water and continuing to talk about massively wasting water. Um, what do you see as optimism? What do you see that's optimistic, I should ask ahead? Well, um, I think Dita touched on it earlier when she okay. expressed that the um, polling that was done for the for Utahns shows the majority of Utahns really want to save water and they really want to see our rivers and streams and lakes continue flowing into future generations and future decades. And I, I really think that, you know, the legislative session is definitely disappointing to see our legislators not mandating what we as Utahns hold in our hearts as wanting for our future. But I think we need to just persevere. Um, the great conservationist Brock Evans always says, it's about endless pressure, endlessly applied. And you know we can't get discouraged just because yet another 45 day legislative session is, is on our horizon, even though it is discouraging. We have to know that most Utahns feel the way we feel which is that we just are being reasonable. We wanna see Utah as it is today for future generations. We want water in our rivers and lakes, and we wanna lower water waste, eliminate water waste and, and use water well. And there's every reason to believe we will succeed if we persevere. Well, we'll succeed, but unfortunately it might be when the water runs out. Do you see or, or do you track, or does anyone track if all of us who feel this way are actively getting rid of our grass and actively conserving, or are we saying it and then turning around and letting the hose run? You know, there's a lot of conscientious consumers in Utah that are lowering their water use by changing their landscaping, and not just in our cities, but in our suburbs as well. There's a lot of um, opportunity there. Um, we are seeing our institutions lag behind 
homeowners. Mm. We are seeing cities and counties still requiring grass landscapes, which is one of the biggest systemic problems is a leadership failure in our local cities. What we're really seeing is that our consumption choices are really helpful, but we really need to augment that leadership as individuals to pressure our local elected officials to get serious about water. We've seen a lot of hype and marketing claims in our cities and counties that uh, really are ignoring their own actions and encouraging water waste. And we need to address that. The local school watering during a rainstorm down the street has a much bigger impact on our water footprint you know, than 10 homeowners stripping out their grass because that, that, that mm. um, elementary school might use 1 million gallons of water in a month. And so watering while it's raining or, you know, watering concrete or watering the middle of the day while it's evaporating, that's a big, big impact on our water footprint. Oh, again, we have places where you have to have a green lawn. It just blows my mind. Kyle Rohrink, I want to give the last word to you. We're almost out of time, got a minute or so left. For people who want to know more about the Great Basin Water Network and want to get involved on this. Yeah, uh, send them to greatbasinwaternetwork.org. And we've been working in Utah for, for decades and, and we're not going anywhere. And we partner with Zach and, and Dita's group on, on all these things. And we're just about bringing people together. And I think that's what we really need right now. We need a, a movement that puts aside other differences and, and recognizes that if we don't change uh, the way that, that we're currently doing business, we're in for big problems. And so if you believe in that, uh, I think you can support all three of us who are on here today. So we welcome and, and relish uh, uh, that and, and want to thank you for your time here. Oh, my pleasure. Kyle Rohrink, Executive Director, Great Basin Water Network. Zach Frankel, Executive Director, Utah Rivers Council. And Dita, as always, Center for Biological Diversity. Thank you. That's the show. My thanks to all the guests uh, adding their voices to Radioactive and to all of you out there in radio listener land. Check out the show notes for links. And if you liked what you hear, please share it in your social media circles and share it with all your friends. It's online now. Check it out, krcl.org. You can hear all our radioactive shows, krcl.org. I'm Nick Burns. Have a great evening. Meet Liz Schulte, host of Root Awakening, Thursdays at 3 a.m. on KRCL. The reason why I actually started doing the show at that bizarro time is when I was baking bread in the morning, it felt like the music was too slow and I wanted some high energy music to kind of get me through baking off that bread. I wanted something with some like pizzazz and energy and oomph. I didn't want to fall asleep. I wanted to be up working because that's what I was doing. So my show kind of like resembles that. It's high intensity. It's like get work done music. I think all DJs kind of curate their shows based upon their individual needs. It is a lot of like bad brains and a lot of like aggressive, intense music, also paired with some like high beat ska. And I'm hoping I'm keeping people on their toes. Liz Schulte, host of Root Awakening, every Thursday at 3 a.m. only on KRCL 90.9.